Chapter Twenty Six of the Apostle of Alaska: The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. From Judge Duncan's Docket. As to the Indian lawbreakers, Judge Duncan did not always follow the strict letter of the law of the land. For some of their offenses, he made up his mind as to what punishment would be most likely to produce the best results, and then inflicted it, regardless of whether he found it on the leaves of the statute book or not. Fortunately, there were no hair-splitting lawyers to take appeals from his judgment in those cases. He says himself, I sometimes went a little outside the law. I never have allowed myself to stumble over a law when something good was to be accomplished. Thus the sentence, in all cases, when an Indian had been guilty of an act of violence which might have resulted in death, was invariably a public whipping. The whole village was then summoned to witness the affair. The man was bared to the waist, tied to a post, and whipped with a rope, but not with a cat of nine tails. Sometimes the whipping was administered by the judge himself, but most generally by one of the constables in one case of improper relations with another's wife the injured husband wished to kill the man but mr duncan persuaded him that it would be a greater satisfaction to be allowed to whip the seducer in public i think it may safely be surmised that he did not simply pretend to flog his man once the man to be whipped was of a very savage disposition so much so that the constable said that they dared not whip him for fear that he would kill the one who did it in revenge as soon as he got free now what was to be done the constables were ordered to blindfold him so he could not see who flogged him and were cautioned not to utter a word so that he could not recognize the executioner by his voice when duncan arrived at the whipping post he merely in silence pointed to the constable whom he ordered to do the whipping he trembled and commenced to talk giving expression to his fears i forbade you to talk did i not said mr duncan now that you shall not be in the darkness as to who whipped you know that it was myself he took the rope and laid it on pretty heavily after the whipping the man was incarcerated for two weeks that was the legal part of the punishment mr duncan had him brought to his room every evening and gave him a good lecture he finally succeeded in making the man see that he had really done him a good turn because by whipping him he had probably saved his life as the man he had attacked was still a heathen and would have been likely to take his own revenge while now he had declared himself satisfied with the punishment meted out to his adversary the man who was whipped on this occasion at a meeting not many years ago when those present gave their experiences stood up and said he was now leading a good life i suppose you would like to know what saved me from an evil life he said know then that it was mr duncan's whipping me many years ago such influence had the combination of the gospel message and this policy of mr duncan upon getting the best of the savage disposition of these indians that while there were eleven murders committed among the tribes at fort simpson the first year he was there now for forty years there has not been a case of bloodshed or even an attack with a weapon among the indians who have come with him once when mr duncan was away some of them quarrelled and two of them used their fists upon each other this is the nearest approach to an act of violence committed among them in forty years what white community can show a record like this 
mr duncan's very decided views upon the efficacy of flogging as a punishment in certain cases may well be worth some attention on the part of criminologists he does not hesitate to say that if a murderer and highway robber was in addition to imprisonment for life or a long term sentenced to be flogged thoroughly every first monday of every month we would have a considerable decrease in the number of these crimes it would certainly be a dread thing for such a criminal to have to look forward to just as the wounds from the last flogging had about nicely healed up probably no man would have to be sentenced the second time for such an offence after he had such an experience for a number of years it might be well worth trying anyhow unless the constitutional prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment would stand in the way but mr duncan did not believe in meeting out flogging as a punishment for wife-beating as the legislatures of delaware and oregon have decreed he says it would not be well to send a man back to his wife with a sore and aching back which he could thank her for he would not be likely to say my dear or to speak any very lovely or honeyed words to her when every movement reminded him of what she had brought upon him mr duncan's way of handling these cases was original and effective when a man had been convicted of wife-beating he sentenced him to imprisonment in the village jail but for no definite term he told the man i will not fix the time of your imprisonment i leave that to your wife when she comes to me and tells me that she thinks you have been punished enough you will get out not one day before mr duncan had another peculiar arrangement in connection with his jail he did not feed his prisoners they had to find their own fare while in the calaboose when a wife-beater was incarcerated the constable in charge had orders to lock up with the prisoner the one of his children who brought him his food for an hour or so each day the natural consequence of this was that the prisoner would send continuously word to the wife with the child asking her to pity him gradually of course her heart would soften it hardly ever took more than a week before she would come to mr duncan and say i think my husband has been punished enough now sir he promises that he will be good and never beat me again the prisoner would then be sent for when he arrived mr duncan would go out leaving them alone together in the office for half an hour or so on returning he would take pains to let his coming be known by a loud cough or by shuffling his feet when he opened the door he invariably found them in opposite corners of the room as far away from each other as they could possibly get he then told the man that any one who would beat his wife was a fool what do you think he would say of any one who would take a sharp knife and hack his own hand would you not say he was a fool yes sir well that is just what you have done your wife is part of yourself and you he would say turning to the wife undoubtedly are quite a bit to blame yourself no man will beat a good woman now see if you cannot be better also go home now both of you and behave yourselves if your temper gets the best of you kneel down and ask god to help you to overcome it in only one single case of wife-beating had the punishment to be repeated and after two years at metlakatla wife-beating became an unknown offence if it existed at all which is doubtful no complaint was ever made of it at any time after that period the stories about the trials of the whiskey sellers before judge duncan would fill a volume i can only give a few 
one whisky seller whose name shall not be given was brought into mr duncan's courtroom a large lofty apartment in front of the mission house where four elaborately carved totem poles held up the ceiling he was duly convicted whereupon mr duncan in sentencing him addressed him as follows i have the right to give you six months in jail but as you claim that it is your first offence and as i have never heard of you before i will let you off with one month but as the jail is cold and i am not going to keep a fire going there for your sake i will not order you to be confined in prison you shall go with the constable and live at his home for a month or as long as you do what he tells you if you disobey him i will give him orders to put you in the cell at once he went away mr duncan saw him occasionally but paid no attention to him nor spoke to him until his time was up he then sent for him to tell him that he was now a free man and could go wherever he wanted to mr duncan was surprised or pretended to be when the man thanked him for his kindness and said i had never lived in a christian family before i have never seen the life of christian people until now your constable insisted that i should be present at their family prayers every day the kindness of the whole family has made such an impression on me that i have made up my mind to become a good man i have never owned a bible before i am going to get one before i leave metlakatla and he did buy one in the store before he left mr duncan of course was glad to hear the result of his peculiar sentence and gave the man all possible encouragement in his determination to turn over a new leaf when some years later mr duncan was in victoria and one evening was trudging up the avenue on his way to bishop cridge's residence he was hailed by a man in a buggy who asked if he might offer him a ride mr duncan accepted and to his amazement recognized the quondam liquor seller he had given the queer sentence he learned that the man actually had become converted in the indian house at metlakatla that he had abandoned the liquor peddling and had started a coal business at victoria where he had joined the methodist church of which he now was a prominent member holding a position of trust and rejoicing in being able to do some humble work in the lord's vineyard that was not however the way all liquor sellers brought before mr duncan turned out mr duncan once met one collins in victoria and told him that he had a warrant for him which had not been served but he said why do you not quit that business and go in for legitimate trade if you do and come up our way i not only will not have the warrant served but will help you all i can in your trade but if you will persist in your evil ways you had better keep out of my jurisdiction for if we catch you up there i will punish you to the full extent of the law that you may feel assured of the man promised before mr duncan returned collins had gone north when he came home he heard that the man had been at an indian camp not far from metlakatla and sold liquor there was abundant proof of his new offence as he had already left the neighbourhood mr duncan sent his constables after him with the old warrant they brought him back why did you not keep your promise which you gave me in victoria i don't care anything about your old warrant neither do i i will not use that now here is a new charge against you and there are the witnesses the constable had brought the sloop along the sentence was five hundred dollars fine which was duly paid the sloop was confiscated and the liquor destroyed collins swore went back to victoria and bought a new sloop which he called duncan thus intending to throw contumely on the honoured name but he fared badly and died poor 
the trial of peter garkotitch came a good deal later in fact after mr duncan's return from his first tour to europe of which we shall hear later on on his return from england mr duncan made a short sojourn in victoria one evening he sat down at table in a restaurant with a german friend it was soon after the close of the franco-prussian war and this war was the subject of their discussion mr duncan happened to remark that he thought it was a just and proper ending to a war which france had had no business to declare as they were leaving a man at the next table who evidently wanted to pick a quarrel with them said you can crow now but the pope will be on top yet we did not speak to you sir answered mr duncan what do you mean anyway we have nothing to do with your pope as a gentleman you ought not to mix up in our conversation when we did not address you the man was peter garkotitch a slavonian trader he afterwards told mr duncan's agent in victoria that he was going to get even with duncan that he was going up to his island and make all his indians drunk the agent told him he'd better not do that as mr duncan would put him in jail for his trouble peter said he was not afraid either of duncan or the devil they would never get him several months later an indian told mr duncan that peter was at woodcock's landing ten miles or so from metlakatla and that he was selling liquor to the indians do you know it yes sir i peeped through a hole in the tent when peter sold a bottle to another indian he gave me the bottle and i have brought it to you and the indian is along outside mr duncan issued a warrant and gave it to eli hamblet a dane who had married one of the metlakatla indians and was then living in the settlement and asked him to take two indian constables with him and go and arrest peter six hours later the man returned threw the warrant down in front of mr duncan and said he would not serve it when peter had been informed that they had a warrant for him he had pulled a revolver and swore he would shoot any man who tried to arrest him don't say you will not arrest the man till you have heard me the majesty of the law must be maintained will you go if i show you that you can arrest him without any danger to your own life yes i will all right take four canoes and ten indians in each let each indian carry a loaded gun when you get within gunshot distance of him stand up in your canoe with the warrant in your hand don't you have a gun but have every one of the forty indians aim his gun at his head then cry to him hold up your hands without a weapon at once or my indians will shoot and riddle you with their bullets if he does not obey command fire if he does comply step forward and arrest him all right i will go everything went as the plan was laid four or five of his men were arrested and twenty-three casks of liquor taken peter fled up the river but they hauled in upon him in an hour or two and he surrendered gracefully it was nearly midnight when they arrived mr duncan mr duncan called peter there are two hundred indians after me they want to kill me you will be all right peter no one will kill you here said mr duncan put him in the jail till morning and have an indian stand guard over him and the liquor till then was the order to mr hamlet the next day he was brought into court and asked if he wanted any one present at his trial yes he mentioned some twelve or thirteen miners at the landing all right we will send for them but then we cannot have the trial till day after tomorrow this was so ordered and then the day of the trial came mr duncan told him that he was glad his friends were present so that they could see that he had a fair trial the two indians then testified conclusively to the sale duncan now turned to the defendant 
now pete do you want any one sworn to testify to your good character which i am frank to say would weigh quite a bit with me or to anything else for all that if so let me know yes sir i do i want to have harry white sworn first he knows me and my character very well sir be sworn harry white a big burly miner stepped forward was sworn kissed the book folded his arms over his breast and said with a great deal of pomposity well sir i have known pete for these many years he has been a respectable and honourable man sir and i always thought he had a good character until the other day sir when i found he sold liquor to the indians what do you say did you know him to do that i do sir yes you did pete and it's no use denying it i'm under oath now sir and i will tell the truth you cannot get me to lie for you pete do you want any other witnesses sworn i can well imagine the humorous twinkle in mr duncan's eyes as he put this question to the defendant no sir was pete's surly answer he was convicted of course and paid in spot cash the fine of five hundred dollars imposed unfortunately says mr duncan we could not confiscate the liquor as we could not prove it was brought up to sell to the indians against his positive assertion that it was brought here to sell to the miners pete therefore started away with his twenty-three casks of liquor but it did him no good he had to pack it at great expense over the divide into the interior when he arrived at his destination he applied to the gold commissioner for a license he however refused to grant him one as he had heard that he had been convicted before mr duncan mr duncan trumped up a case against me i know duncan sir he is an honest and conscientious man who trumps up no case against any man you can get no license here as he could not even get a permit to sell the liquor to someone else he was obliged to pack it back again as the liquor had not been paid for this transaction ruined him shortly afterwards he committed suicide the way of the transgressor is hard but it was when he tackled the hudson's bay company for selling liquor to the indians that mr duncan truly showed his grit no other man in the northwest province would have dared do it to accuse this honorable company and its honorable directors the very power behind the throne in the province of the most heinous offense then known to that country but they should soon find if they did not suspect it already that mr duncan was no respecter of persons or even of the mightiest corporation in the land among other not altogether excellent assistance which the church missionary society had from time to time sent him was an ex-prize fighter named cunningham who claimed to have been converted but whose conversion was not any deeper than that he on his way up to act as a missionary gambled away every cent he had mr duncan soon found him out and sent him about his business this was just the proper man for the company he could put them right with the indians so they picked him up and appointed him agent at fort simpson it was rumored about that liquor was being sold at the fort to the indians one of mr duncan's constables wholly on his own account and anxious to secure the moiety of the fine which the law allowed to the informer got a fort simpson indian to take a marten skin go into the fort and ask for a bottle of whiskey the assistant trader a norwegian hans bjornsson by name sent him to the side door of the warehouse where cunningham came examined his skin and then gave a bottle to hans who in turn handed it to the indian who again brought it to the constable waiting outside the gate of the fort 
the evidence was not very strong the only corroboration of the indian who brought it being that of the constable that he saw him go into the fort with the skin and come out soon after without it and that he brought back a bottle which he was morally sure he did not have before he went in and of course there was the bottle the evidence not being very strong mr duncan preferred to summon mr cunningham and mr bjornson rather than to issue a warrant for them on the return day mr cunningham appeared but not mr bjornson mr duncan who had been informed by the constable that he had not served mr bjornson because mr cunningham had taken the copy of the summons for him and promised he would give it to him upon the opening of court said where is hans bjornson mr cunningham i don't know did you give him the summons you took from the constable no sir why not he did not come back before i left was he not in the fort when the constable was there no sir mr duncan who knew that this was false and had formulated his plan announced this case stands adjourned till to-morrow forenoon at eleven o'clock at which time you will appear again sir mr cunningham protested against this arbitrary adjournment but that was all the good it did him a warrant was at once issued for hans bjornson and the constables were ordered to proceed with all possible haste to serve it and to be sure to get to the fort before mr cunningham bring mr bjornson along with them and under no circumstances to allow mr cunningham to speak to him they started at once and soon hauled in on cunningham who suspecting something to be in the wind had hurried back seeing their canoe hurrying by cunningham tried to follow it fortunately a fog came in from the sea just then the constables noticing the other canoe following them changed their course and paddled with hard strokes out to sea after them as fast as he could go went cunningham when they thought they had got him sufficiently out of the right course they placed their paddles in the water noiselessly and stealthily but with heavy pulls steering their canoe in towards the land and reached fort simpson arrested hans bjornson and were a couple of miles on their way back when they met cunningham's canoe which had lost its bearings in the dense fog he tried to speak to bjornson but the constables knew their business and flew past him singing their canoe song so loudly that no one could get a word in edgewise arrived at metlakatla and brought before mr duncan hans bjornson fully and voluntarily admitted the transaction and said he wanted to plead guilty but mr duncan put him in a cell till the next morning when he was brought into court and confronted with cunningham who tried in vain to get into communication with him bjornson's case was called first and he pleaded guilty though cunningham tried by gestures and grimaces to have him stand trial cunningham denied everything but was convicted as mr duncan considered the indian story at least morally if not legally corroborated by the assistance plea of guilty as it was only one single transaction and the maximum fine five hundred dollars had to be apportioned between them at least that was the way mr duncan understood the law he fined Cunningham four hundred and Bjornson one hundred dollars, which fines, of course, had to be paid before they were allowed to leave the courtroom. The company afterwards sued out a writ of error, but the conviction was held good, and the Hudson's Bay Company again had to acknowledge that it had met its master and its second Waterloo in its fight with the lowly lay missionary of Metlakatla. End of chapter 26